We can turn over in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 13. If you are here last week, you know we're taking a little break from our study in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've turned our hearts to Romans, um, dealing with the subject of God and government. I think there's something coming up in a couple weeks, if I recall, a big event, (laughs) and we all get to participate as citizens of this wonderful country, and so we want to look at what God's Word has to say as far as um, God and government. And so we're looking at that now, and, and we pray that, uh, you know, our hearts would be open to God's Word as we look at these things. When you come to the subject of voting, it becomes a very divisive, it becomes a very volatile issue, and these, this series is designed to help inform you um, to, as you walk into that voting booth, uh, that you're casting an educated vote uh, that's closely aligned to God's Word as you can be. It's never perfect, right? There is no perfect candidate. Um, and that's not the purpose of this series, to get you a vote for a certain person. Um, but his, whole, his Word holds authority for us, and we acknowledge it as such, and um, we, we need to look to that to make sure that we understand. Now, last week we introduced um, the idea of kingdom voting of a kingdom mindset. Uh, today, the world and the, the church even is filled with a mindset that causes divisiveness, not only in our culture, but unfortunately even in the church. Um, and it, it's, it causes disharmony, it causes disunity, conflict. And I think there's a different way that we can look at this. And last week, we began this little series, and we, we said that there's such a thing as a kingdom worldview. A kingdom worldview. And I defined it this way. We believe in a visible demonstration and manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our lives. Over every area of our lives. And so I pray that that is your worldview. That we understand that there is a God in heaven who is overseeing everything we see going on. And Secondly, we looked at the idea of being a kingdom voter. What does that mean? Well, we defined it this way. It's the opportunity and responsibility of committed Christians, those who know Christ, to partner with God by expanding his rule in society through civil government. Now, we're going to define civil government for you this morning. I don't think we did that last week, but we're going to do that this morning. And so if we have a kingdom worldview, we want to be a kingdom voter And that means we have to be a kingdom independent. (laughs) And uh, we said that means we should all be kingdom independents simply because there's no party, Democrat, Republican, all the other ones thrown in there. There's no party that will hold your total allegiance when it comes to the things of God forever. And so we have to be careful, especially as Christians, that we are not too quick to run into a certain camp. Because I'm sure there's people in both camps today looking at their parties going, what happened? <laughs> what happened to the party I knew? Good or bad? There's, there's people on both sides of that. And so we, we began our study and we looked at God's sovereignty. And we said that we understand that the word says that God is sovereign over everything. 
Sometimes when you talk about politics and you talk about God and you bring him into the, 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 the limelight of politics, people say, well, we're not, we don't live under a theocracy. And we talked a little bit about what that meant. But we understood that God is sovereign. He states himself to be so, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, I read this past week in illustration, back in the years of 1014 to 1035, long time ago. None of you were there then. <laughs> uh, there was a king, a Danish king, actually, who ruled over England. And his name was King Canute. And people looked at this king, and they flattered this king with extravagant praise. They just continually just said, oh, how great you are, how much power you have, you're just invincible. And after a while, to be frank, the king got sick of it. And so what he did is he ordered his subjects to take his throne down to the beach and put it in the sand. And he sat on the throne. And as the waves began to come in, as the tide came in, the story says in history that he ordered the waves to stop. And he continued to do so. Well, we know what happened, right? (laughs) The poor guy's throne began to sink in the sand as the waves came in and he got wet. And no matter how forcefully he ordered the tide not to come in, it came in. His word was not obeyed. His word was not obeyed. And one historian tells us that after that event, he never wore his crown again. Instead, he hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ. See, even kings know that there is someone more powerful. There's someone who's got to be over this entire thing. And so we acknowledge God's sovereignty. That was the first point. Secondly, we looked at the four systems of government. We said that there's self-government. You know, how we run our own lives. The Bible gives us instruction on that. Uh, There's also the government of family, within your own family structure. The Bible is very clear how that's to be set up. And God expects you to live in your family accordingly. But there's also the government within a church. A lot of times when visitors come to a church for the first time, they say, what kind of church government do you have here? They want to know, is the pastor in control of everything, or do you have multiplicity of leaders, elders, or is the congregation in control? They want to know. It's called church polity, church government. Well, the Bible speaks to that as well. And then we also said that there's national government or or civil government, some call it. And we, we spoke to this, and we said that so many times in our own lives we look to the Bible because we're Christians, right? We want to do what God wants us to do. And when it comes to our families, we go to the Scriptures as believers because we follow Christ and we say, well, what does the Bible say about my marriage? What does the Bible say about rearing my kids? What does the Bible say about my family? And even in the church, we want to know, well, are they doing things by the book? Are they doing things biblically? And then something weird happens when we start to talk about government. We want to change the plan. We want to go to a different book. 
Because we've been taught that, what? There's a separation. It's called, what? Separation of church and state, right? So how somehow magically you're supposed to leave God out of the arena of civil government when he's the one that came up with the whole concept in the first place. It's really ridiculous when you think about it. But so many people in Christianity have bought into this for years. And it's only been in the last couple of years when they changed some certain things in the government that allowed you to speak to certain things, dealing with politics, that you wouldn't lose your nonprofit, that people can become a little more, uh, a little bolder, I guess. But we, we know those four systems of government. And then we said, thirdly, well, if this is so, what side is God on? And we talked about the idea of covenants. We talked about that in every area of government, God expects us to be under his covering, whether it's you as individuals, whether it's your family, whether it's your church, whether it's your civil government, national government, local government. It all falls under the umbrella of his covenant. And we used that illustration of an umbrella, and we talked about how an umbrella, just because it's raining outside and you walk outside just because you have an umbrella, it doesn't stop the rain, right? It just keeps the rain from falling on you. And that's the purpose of an umbrella. And that's the purpose of a covenant. As long as we are operating under God's gracious covenant, the area where he says, if you stay here, you'll be blessed. If you go over there, you won't be. We have to understand that. And so the further you move away from or outside of the bounds of his covering, his covenant, his umbrella, to put it simply, guess what? The further you move away from his blessings. And we see that happening in our own country. And I have to say that probably this upcoming election is probably one of the most important elections that we've ever had. That's just the way it is. And God made it clear in Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we love to recognize God as a person. We pray, we go to church, we do all these things. But God demands that we not only recognize him as a person, but we also recognize his policies, his rules. Because he's the one that is in control. See, and when you begin to move away from God's policies and only worship his person, then guess what? What do you have? You have chaos. That's what you see in churches. That's what you see in our country today. And our our desire should be to vote the way the Lord would have us to vote. And so we ask the question, well, what side is God on? (laughs) And we remember we went back to, to Joshua chapter 5 and we looked at verse 13 and Joshua was getting ready for a big battle and he, he meets the angel of the Lord who is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Christophany in the Old Testament. And he says, hey, are you for our adversaries or are you for us? He's asking the angel of the Lord, who are you going to vote for? <laughs> That's what he's doing. And the angel of the Lord responds very quickly and he says, no, I'm not on either side. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. What's he saying? Because all that doesn't matter to me. I have a whole different kingdom. And that's hard for some people to understand because they think just because we're Christians that, well, God's going on our side. Well, you can be a Christian and not live in a Christian way. You can be a Christian and remove yourself from that 
umbrella of blessing from the Lord if you choose to be disobedient in any way. And so we describe ourselves as being kingdom independence. Kingdom independent. You know, we're not, we're not obliged to the Democrats. We're not obliged to the Republicans. Because we know that that's just what this earth has come up with. Now, God has established government, and we're going to talk about that. But see, God is in heaven saying, I'm not going to take sides. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. That's why he's called Lord. So you don't just add Jesus to your life. That's not what Christianity is. He's not just something you add in a little corner of your life. No, that's why he's called the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to take over. Why? Because he rules. Whether you acknowledge it or not, every, the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means believers and unbelievers, by the way. And so we were very, we went through those points. We wanted folks to know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. They'll deal with it. They'll. <laughs> As we dealt with that last week, the one thing that we want to know is we, we want to be a partner with, who? with God. We want to be a partner with God when we go into that voting booth. And um, God isn't choosing sides in that. And so we describe kingdom voting as the opportunity and responsibility, by the way, of committed Christians to partner with God by expanding his rule in society through civil government. Now, this brings us really to our text for this morning in Romans. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. And I just ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read this, these four verses, and we'll see how far we get. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to help us to focus on our message this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you caught, you may be seated, I hope you caught what this says here. If you want to be the right kind of government, you want to have a government that God will honor, he has to be in the equation. You can't isolate him. And yet that's what our country has sought to do over the past many years. The further you move 
away from God's person and God's policy, you've removed yourself from the blessing and covering as a nation. We say, God bless America, right? It's a song we sing. Well, it's impossible for God to bless a country that is so steeped in sin. And it requires repentance. You can't just change the book and say, well, we're going to live by a different set of beliefs when it comes to politics. Um, It's going to affect how our government operates. It's going to affect the character of the leaders that we elect to hold office. And if you elect people who are not in accord or aligned with God's purpose and principles, then you are removing yourself and your country, by the way, from divine blessing. doesn't matter how much you're going to pray. doesn't matter how much you read God's word or go to church. When you mess with God's authority, you're messing with his agenda. (laughs) You're messing with his orders. And he's not just going to take that lying down. Now, when you look throughout the Bible, you know, people like to remove politics from the Bible, but it's, it's full of politics. The Bible is full of it. From Genesis to Revelation, what do you see? You see God setting up governments. You see God tearing down governments. You see God giving laws. You see God judging law breakers. That's all government. And he makes a very comprehensive statement there in verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, all authorities... There is no authority that exists apart from God, Paul writes. So what does that include? It includes all. It includes everyone from your mayor to your city council, to your state legislator, to your governor, to your house of representatives, to your senators. Yes, to your president. All authorities. And you have to understand, to the degree that they are aligned with God's person and God's policies is the degree that you'll have a unified nation, is the degree that you'll have a free nation, that you'll have a just nation, a righteous nation. Conversely, to the degree that they are misaligned or unaligned with God's person and his policies, you will have chaos. Chaos will replace order. God is a God of order. And that's what we see today. And so the fourth point here in our outline, government as a divine institution. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that have existed, or that do exist, have been instituted by God. What is this saying? It's saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because it's God's purpose. It's God's plan. He set these authorities in place. It even qualifies, says no authority exists. Nobody has any authority apart from God. Proverbs 8, verses 15 to 16 says this, By me, the Lord says, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. See, God is in control 
of these things. Isaiah chapter 46 declares God's sovereign rule. It declares even government as a divine institution. It says in verse 9, Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel far from a country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. And how incredible is God calls us as believers to partner with him in his purpose, in his plan. Psalm 72, 11 says, May all kings fall down before him, before the Lord. All nations serve him. Daniel 4.17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest, lowest of men. I mean, even in the New Testament, we see where Jesus was dealing with Pilate in John chapter 19, verses 10 to 11. It says, And Pilate said to Jesus, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Pretty intimidating statement, right? You're standing before the sole ruler. What does Jesus say? It says, Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Or even in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That means that when people say, you know what? God was involved in the forming of the United States of America. Yes, he was. That drives some people crazy. You can't say that. Well, the Bible says it. See, there is no government or no authority apart from God. And because of that, you cannot discuss government without bringing God into the discussion. Would you agree? I mean, there's one thing, I guess, one thing to vote for, which covers everything. One thing. I mean, it sounds kind of simplistic, because there's a lot of different things. You know, you can vote for many laws, different people, different perspectives, all that stuff. But if you get, have this one overarching understanding and a covenantal view and definition of civil government, it will make things a lot easier. If you vote for this one thing, now... You may not all vote the same, but if you at least vote with a kingdom view as a kingdom independent and do it be a kingdom voter, that's good. Whether you're leaning toward the Democrats or toward the Republicans, we want you to be kingdom independence, independent. And this is what you have to understand. You have to understand the definition of civil government. It's there in your outline, I believe. The biblical role of civil government 
as outlined in Romans 13, we're going to look at this morning, is to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment. Why? For freedom to flourish. That's the role of civil government. If you understand that definition, and then you look at the different political choices you have, and you ask yourself, well, who is aligning themselves to what is closest to God's kingdom, to his definition of government? That's what your goal should be. Because if you're See, it's not about a person. It's not voting for a certain individual or a certain party. That's, see, that's where we've missed the boat, even as the church, when we go into the voting booth. Because we've detached God from the whole process of voting. We should be on our knees. We should be praying, God, who do you want me to vote for? Who best represents your principles, your policies, as outlined in your word? Because that's what I'm called to do as a Christian. That's what a Christian is. He follows Christ. He follows God. So you have to look at your different choices and put them up against the biblical definition of civil government. What are they called to do? They're called to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately reasonable environment for freedom to flourish. Because if you vote for that, then you're voting for God. You're voting for his perspective. You're voting for his policies that inform that goal. And so you're going to come at it differently because we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different priorities. We've all been raised differently. And I would never insist that everybody vote one way, but I am insisting that everybody vote. And we'll outline why. So... We want to give you a framework to which you can look at the person and the policies. And it has to be both. Okay, I've heard some people say certain things, and it really grates against what the Bible says about the responsibility and the stewardship of voting. Because certain individuals have certain personalities. Well, I could never vote for somebody who has that kind of personality. That's not what you're voting for. You're not just voting for the person. You're voting for their policies. You're voting for what they stand for. You cannot remove God's perspective from government and have an ordered society. Either it will become a chaotic environment, it will become anarchy, that's what we see going on. It will become oppressive. It will become so free because there's no standards at all, you you, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to go all over the place. And when people hear that, you know what? We have to bring God into this. They say, well, we're not a theocracy. Well, the Bible declares we are. (laughs) Because the Bible declares that he is in control of everything. He's not only over our country, he's over every country. See, what we should be worried about is a 
ecclesiocracy, some, a government that raises up and says, oh, you know what, you can only be this particular religion or this particular faith. And if you're this particular religion or this particular faith, we are going to rule. But if you remove God completely from an ordered society, what do you end up with? You don't end up with a theocracy or ecclesiocracy. You end up with a homocracy, which basically is man replacing God. That's where we're at right now. Man has replaced God in the name of government. So get the perspective. If you leave God out, government is in trouble. And because government's in trouble, guess what? We're in trouble. The citizens of that government are in trouble. But when you bring God in, when you bring God in through his policies and his person, then you have a much more ordered environment in which to live and fulfill the role of what we said, safety, justice, righteousness, and compassion. Everybody working together to help a hurting nation like ours is hurting right now. And the idea of government is to mirror or reflect, really, the image of God for the well-being of society. Think about it. When God established the nation Israel, right, his chosen people, what did he do? He gave them a constitution. He gave them the Ten Commandments, right? He gave them the law. I mean, that's why in so many courthouses all around our nation, guess what you see? The Ten Commandments. And what are they doing? Oh, you can't have them there. That's trying to tear everything down now. I mean, God is, is so generous. He's so gracious. He goes, look, I'm going to make this real easy for everybody. I'm just going to give you ten things. Ten commandments. And then I'm going to give you 613 statutes as a nation of Israel and ordinances, which are really the application of those ten commandments. So you can sum everything up in ten, but if you're, if you're wondering about the particulars, then you can go on and look at all 613 if you're part of, of the nation of Israel. And that tells you how to live in your society, what to eat, what not to eat, all that good stuff. But I'm going to give you ten commandments. And if you'll apply these ten commandments to your life realities. If you do this, guess what? You will be under my covenant. You will be under my covering. You'll be under my umbrella. Therefore, you will be under my blessing. Deuteronomy 29.9. So if you really want to see our nation healed and helped, as you look at voting and politics and government and all this stuff, we better bring God's person and his policies from his perspective into the picture. Because once he's excluded, that vacuum is going to be filled. And it's not going to be filled with nice things. It's going to be filled with things that will decay and destroy a nation, not heal it. In Romans 1, it speaks of people who reject God, who turn their backs on God. And so we need to make our allegiance not to a a party per se, but to the God of the Bible. Now, I'm saying this because government is not just a political enterprise. I believe that that government is a um, sacred enterprise. 
It's something that God has established for us because it involves himself. It's a spiritual enterprise. And it's unfortunate when you bring up anything spiritual in a political arena, what happens? Well, you're just cast aside. Forget it. You can't talk about that. They don't want to hear when you bring up what God has to say about justice or what God has to say about brutality or about race or about life. Because they're starting their comments with, well, I think this, or I feel this, or my opinion is that. You know what? I don't care what your opinion is. It's irrelevant, and you shouldn't care what mine is. See, you don't get to have an opinion when you're talking about disagreeing with God the Almighty. You just don't, period. I mean, you may have it, but if you know what's good for you, you better conform it really quickly to what he says. And not hold on to your own opinion if it's in disagreement with his. You have to switch it. Because if government belongs to God, you better get his opinion and adjust your opinion to his. But unfortunately, the mere fact is we're spending more time getting folks' opinions before we get God's opinion on anything. And that's not just in politics. That's in every facet of life. There are people that are more interested in going to the bookstore or looking online and finding the, the greatest, the newest book on how to have a happy marriage or how to fix your finance or how to do this. And they've never even read what the Bible says about it. So we have to be careful. No wonder the nation is in chaos because God's people are in chaos. We're not addressing these issues comprehensively. We're, we're picking and we're choosing. We're, we're not understanding that all of government is to come under his reign. If you want and you desire the order that he promises. If you partner with God in your vote, in his definition of civil government, to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and comprehensive compassionately responsible environment for freedom to flourish, if you do that, then there's a, there's a, a chance. Now, verse 2 here, it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. So once again, he's doubling down on the idea that God's, God's in charge here, not you. And those who resist will incur judgment. You know, he's talking about the ordinances of God here in verse 2. He's, he's basically saying, look, God has established authority. God has a rule book. He has some policies. And we're called to live by them. And, and we don't get to make up the rules even when it comes to government. God has already established them. We're called to find out his rules and obey his ordinances. See, those are the, the governing guidelines. I mean, we've all probably recited the Pledge of Allegiance in school. And when we did that, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're reminded of our, our governing authorities, that we're pledging allegiance to this country, the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation. What? Under God. Under God. 
See, the concept of a, a national covenant or agreement is not an American concept. It's a, it's a biblical one. And we talked a little bit about that last week. That it's a divinely created relational bond. And God very clearly tells us that, you know what? Um, if, you're, if you're interested in having a, a nation that's filled with prosperity and peace and, and under my umbrella of blessing, then you better do it my way. <laughs> I mean, that's why the Pledge of Allegiance is so, so great. The idea of America is so great because it, it recognized from the very beginning that there are inalienable rights given by who? By the Creator. That belong to all men. And if we're willing to place ourselves under his sovereign rule, then we're going to benefit from that. You know, we all have families. We all have homes. Some of us have children. Some of us have children who moved out. Others, whatever. But basically, we're all in charge of our home. Or we should be. Now, the Bible speaks to how the Christian family should should function, very clear about that. But every household here probably has guidelines. They probably have rules. I've been to some of your homes, and when you walk in the door, you, you see a bunch of shoes on a mat. And you realize very quickly, well, they take off their shoes. That's fine. That's the rule. That's the guideline. There's nothing, you don't have to apologize for it. That's just the way it works. So that's okay. But see, our, 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 our house is also under the guideline of God, right? What's the scripture say? But me, for me and my house, what? We will serve who? The Lord. The Lord. Now, in your household, especially if you have children, and if it hasn't happened yet, it will, you will find out that foreign rules and foreign influences seek to kind of make their way into your household where you have authority. And maybe your kids have looked at you and said, well, Johnny's parents, <laughs> let them do. Why can't I? Doesn't matter. You want Johnny's rules? Go live in Johnny's house, right? Right? What does our nation says? One nation, what? Under God. See, we're not in our own little house here, folks. We're in God's house. And God is supposed to be the leader of our nation. So God is calling a nation of citizens to recognize his rulership, his lordship, his rules. Now, that doesn't mean that People filling the positions within governing authorities are intentionally serving God. Because, just look at our government, right? Most of them aren't. But the institution of governmental authority has been created, it has been decreed, it has been established by God. And it's underneath His sovereign control. So you ask the question, well, if, if God is the sovereign ruler and cause of all these governing authorities... Are there times, very practical question, 
Are there times when a Christian may refuse to submit, even though here it says that we're called to be in subject to every authority? Well, yes, there are times. There's three. Three instances. I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, when you're asked to violate a command of God. If the governing authorities tell you to violate a command which your creator God has put into place, you have to say, sorry, (laughs) not going to do it. Acts 4, right? Remember, the disciples were arrested. They were arrested for preaching about the Lord, about preaching about Christ. And they were brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, you could call it. And they were basically reprimanded. They were told to quit preaching. And what happened? The disciples disobeyed. And it says in Acts 5, verse 29, what their answer was, we must obey God rather than, what? Men. There's no exception. Always. Always. There's no exception to that rule. If government asks us to do something which is contrary to God's revealed will, we have an obligation to resist. But we also must be willing to accept, what? The consequences. Acts 5.33 says the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. Well, eventually they did, but... You know, if you've ever read about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he took a stand when no one else was taking a stand. And it's a very interesting read. And you come to understand that, wow, you know what? They were resisting by way of confession. And it's, it's, it's important sometimes that confession leads to some resistance. So if the government says you do this and the Bible says no, you don't do that, we see that very clearly. It would be like a doctor who is sworn to uphold an oath to support life. And the government says, no, we want you to kill that child. That unborn child. That's the second actual reason. It leads to the second one. Not only when they, when they forbid you from or, or make you violate a command of God, but when you're asked to commit an unethical act. Back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, to kind of push down the Jewish population, Pharaoh ordered all of the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the male babies. Remember that story? Well, what'd they do? They refused to do it, if you remember. And today we see all these children being aborted. I read one statistic. It says, since China has instituted back in 1979 the one-child policy, over 200 million, probably more than that, abortions, Babies have been murdered. See, when we're asked to commit an unethical act, then we have to say, sorry, I'm obeying a higher, a higher authority. And then thirdly, when one authority violates the delegated power God requires of him. 
You see that back in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, when Nebuchadnezzar built a statue of himself and demanded everyone bow down to it. Remember the story? You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there, and they refused. And they said, hey, you know what? We're, we're going we're gonna to obey God. And some think, well, today even, when our governor had all these conditions and prohibited churches to meet. I mean, we went on, went along for a month or two, and then we began to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? You're allowing these people to go nuts in the streets, they're okay. Are you saying we can't meet as a church? Why not? It's unsafe. Well, not really. So we started meeting. I mean, what if the Supreme Court of the United States declares that churches must marry gay couples, homosexual couples? Do we have to abide by that? What if the court said, hey, you know what, you can't read Romans 1 because Romans 1 is hate speech and you're committing a hate crime. We think, well, that would never happen here. <laughs> I'll tell you what. A lot of it weighs in the balance right now with this election. Or maybe a local mosque moves into your neighborhood and demands to live under Sharia law. What if that neighborhood becomes a no-go zone for local police? (laughs) That's real. That's happening right now in our country in certain areas. So we need to be careful We need to be reminded that God has established government as a divine institution. Well, fifthly, what's the overarching role of civil government? He says this in verses 3 to 4. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, there's good behavior in any society, right? And there's bad behavior. There's people that act uprightly and there's people that act like idiots. I mean, that's just the way it is. So he says, you know what? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you're driving down Jefferson and the Redwood City Police is shooting radar there and you're not speeding, you don't really care. (laughs) You don't, don't even pay attention. You don't even care. But if you're going 60 miles an hour down Jefferson when the speed limit's 30, 35, whatever it is, you're going to care real quick <laughs> when you see the little lights go on and the siren and they pull you over and they give you a multi-hundred dollar fine. That's going to make you care. See, he says, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. The question is, in our society, well, what's good, (laughs) right? What's bad? Who's defining it? Who's defining what's good and what's bad? If everyone is defining what they think, they're giving their opinion, they're opining on what is good and bad, then what are you going to have? You're going to have competing definitions of goodness. (laughs) That's just the way it is. As a believer, as a Christian, as someone who follows 
God's instructions, we know what is good. Why? Because God says it's good. He says it's good. And we know what is bad or evil because God says it's bad. I mean, that's why it's, it's not difficult. That's why he gave us the Ten Commandments, right? What, what do the Ten Commandments start off? Thou shalt not. <laughs> Don't do these things, right? Thou shalt not. What's he doing? He's giving us a standard of good and bad. In our civil government, that's why we have laws. That's why we have ordinances. There's certain things that you can do, and there's certain things that you can't do. Why? Because someone has decided, based on some standard, and it goes back to God ultimately, what is good and what is bad. Well, here, he says all this exists because of God, so these ordinances come from God. That means there's one standard of right and wrong. And you have to know what that standard is. And if we take this definition of government seriously and vote accordingly and bring God's perspective to bear on every system of government, then guess what? We're going to be bringing healing to our nation. We're going to be bringing unity to our nation. Why? Because people will learn to operate under the rules of engagement that are righteous and just and unifying. Because they're from God. If our leaders use their position to bring justice and righteousness and unity, then and only then can we experience the freedom that God desires to give us as he defines it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says this, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. See, if you're going to experience healing, if you're going to experience help for our country, then when you go to the voting booth, you have to be praying that God help me vote what's in a line with your rule. Under God, the government is to promote the conditions of well-being. The well-being of who? The citizens. (laughs) Not their own (laughs) well-being. And they should be protecting the citizens against any form of evil. John MacArthur has a wonderful definition of government. He says the role of government is to reward and protect the righteous and punish the evildoers. Period. That's all government's called to do. Protect the righteous and punish the evildoers. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. (laughs) Isn't that where we're living today? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They're blind and they don't even know it. See, the role of government, beloved, is not to come in and take over your family and tell you how to discipline your children or come into the church and tell you how to do the church. The role of the government is not to inform you on how you should live within your marriage or how you should um, even act as an individual. The role of the government is to protect the righteous and punish the evildoers. 
Government is to restrict the flow of evil while simultaneously and intentionally seeking to expand the flow of good. That's what they're called to do. Now, I know we look at our, our governments, right, and we go, man, we need help. Amen? That's why this is so important. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, the prophet writes this, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, they can't see. There's no light. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the result of turning your back on someone who has instituted government. And the overarching role of government is to provide Peace for the righteous, protection for the righteous, and punishment for the evildoer. Now look at what it says in verse 4. This is rather interesting. He says, for he, the civil leader, that's who he's referring to, the one that God has put in authority, is God's servant or God's minister, some translations say, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a minister or servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now remember, this is God's perspective of government. This is not what we see going on in our current nation or even state. This basically says, you know what? If someone commits a crime that's a capital offense, and they're going to be put to death because they've taken a life, It shouldn't be drawn out for 20 years. It just shouldn't be. Now, you want to get it right, obviously, because you're talking about life and death, right? But if you get it right, it should be swift. It should be severe. It says here, he is a servant or minister for your good. That's what God calls civil leaders. That's what God calls those in local government. They're they're servants. They're ministers. That's what God calls the legislator, the senators, even the president. He's a what? Civil, what do we call him? Servant. Now, when you're talking about ministers, a lot of times you think, oh, a pastor or somebody in ministry. No, it can be that, and it is. We're all called to be ministers, right? We're all called to be servants to some degree as Christians. No one would argue that. But even in ministry, you can have... Good ministers and poor ministers, right? You can. They still have the title of minister. That doesn't mean they're good. They hold the position of minister. I mean, even in countries today, certain countries use that term for a a political office. In Israel, you have the minister of tourism. Or in England, you have the prime what? Minister. They hold the position. 
the time of this writing, who was the minister over Rome? Nero. Not a good guy. (laughs) He was someone who held the position, but he wasn't a, a good person. See, the role of of Christians, the role of followers of Christ, the followers of God, are to call these ministers to account, to hold them to a standard personally and policy-wise. That's what we're called to do. You don't just skip the, the policy and go to the person. You don't just skip the person and go to the policy. It's a joint deal. Why? Because the ordinances that they're going to be enforcing are in the hands of these ministers. Um, In our country, we're a constitutional republic. That's what we're called. What does that mean? It means the focus of the power, the way it originally was set up, should be where? On the citizens. That's who has the power, the way our country was arranged. The government derives its authority from who? From people, like you and me. Unlike many countries around the world where they can't go to a ballot box. They don't have the opportunity to go and vote. See, we get to go and make the best effort of being a good steward of what God has entrusted as we vote Why? Because we want to control our political future. There's a lot of people that can't do that. We're stewards of that, just like we're stewards of anything else God entrusts to us. Power resides with the people in our republic. We don't believe that anymore. That's the problem. See, when Christians vote, what are we doing? We're delegating our ruling authority to others. We're saying, I'm going to go and vote for this person or for that person. What are we doing? We're giving them authority to act on our behalf. We're entrusting to them. We call those people politicians, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the president, everybody in between. We're trusting that they will uphold what they said they're going to do. And not only that, but we're entrusting to them the issue of sword-bearing, which is a pretty serious thing. We want them to carry out the rule of law because they're going to be governing on our behalf. Now, when you see it from that perspective, you you go, wow, this is a pretty big deal. See, society wants us to think, you know what, your vote doesn't matter. Your vote doesn't matter. Don't, Don't even vote. Who cares? God's sovereign. It's all going to turn out the way he, he wants to anyway. You just don't, just stay home. That's being a poor steward. That's like saying, hey, you know what? The money you have in your savings account, yeah, just go spend it. Who cares? God's going to provide anyway, so I'm not going to save anything. You're not going to have many blessings if that's your attitude. So voting is a matter to, of stewardship, and failure to vote is really throwing away that stewardship. And I'll say one other thing, too. And this is personal with me, but I hear people say, well, I'm not voting for either one. I'm going to write in the name of Mickey Mouse. That's just plain stupid. 
That's throwing your vote away. A vote that God has graciously given you, given you to be a steward of. I get it. Neither candidate's perfect. That's why we don't expect that. That's not what, why, why we're not aligning ourselves with, quote, either candidate. But we're aligning ourselves with how do they line up with our definition of civil government? How do they line up with not the, the democratic position or the Republican position? How do they line up with the lamb's position? You got the donkeys, you got the elephant. Well, we got about the lamb. We never mentioned the lamb. Pretty significant factor. And what's the outcome, lastly here quickly, intended outcome of biblically-based government is freedom. It's freedom. That's what God says. Even in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, that the Lord commanded man, saying, you, shall, you, may eat, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. What is that? That's freedom. Now, yeah, he qualified it. He said, don't do this. What's that? That's God graciously giving you guidelines. See, this whole idea is we don't need any rules. We got to disband the police and do all. That's crazy talk. Even the people that are saying it don't believe it. And the reason I know that to be true is because the people that are spouting these things, guess what? When they travel, guess what travels with them? A security detail. Guess where they live? Behind a secure wall with a gate and a security guard. See, they don't believe even what they're telling us. But the intended outcome of any biblically-based government is more freedom, not the government having more say in our lives. Freedom can be defined as a release from illegitimate bondage in order to make the choice to exercise responsibility in actualizing and maximizing all that you were created to be. Freedom is a release from illegitimate bondage in order to make the choice to exercise responsibility in actualizing and maximizing all that you were created to be. God wants us to be free. Civil government exists to promote personal and collective freedom through resisting evil, overseeing the proliferation of good, through maintaining a just society. The closer God is to the society, the more ordered it becomes. The farther you remove God from a society, guess what happens? Anarchy, chaos, all that stuff. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 3 to 6, it says this, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. Why? Because they were without God. They were without the Lord. They were without his law.
When you think of England, who do you think of? The Queen, right? The Queen of England. I mean, she's very highly esteemed. I don't necessarily get it because I wasn't raised in that. My wife, if there's something about the royal family, she's all over it. Oh, I've got to get up at 3 in the morning and watch this, whatever. It's like, well, she's not that bad, but pretty much. And she was, you know, she comes from a British colony. I understand that. So, you know, she's interested in that. But the, the queen is someone who's greatly respected. Greatly respected. I mean, on a regular basis, the prime minister sits down with the queen to update her on all the government business. She's highly respected. If the flag's up or down over the palace over there, it depends on whether she's there or not. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. She's very highly respected, but you know what? She has no power. She has absolutely no power. She doesn't determine any laws. She's highly positioned. She holds the position. But when, when it comes to government policy, that's something that she's simply informed about. They tell her what's happening. She's not part of that conversation, how to change rules and all that stuff. It's not something that she determines. And when I think of that illustration, I think that's how we view God. Right? We hold him in high esteem. In God, we trust. is all over our money, all over our buildings. One nation under God in our pledge. In the preamble, preamble to the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What? That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that are among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, when we go to a political event, it started with what? An invocation. It's closed with what? A benediction. They used to do that here in Redwood City, but something happened. I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) See, God is held in high esteem across our nation. But when it comes to how the nation operates, guess what? He has no clout at all. They don't care. They don't want to hear it. They could care less about how he thinks or how he operates. We keep him in the position. We go to church. We pray. We sing our songs. We do all that stuff. But... Beloved, if you and I want to see a nation healed and helped, then we cannot allow our God to be extracted from our government. We need to clarify, we need to discern whether or not the political platforms of the donkey or the elephant reflect the greater kingdom priorities of the platform of the Lamb of God. Those who follow the agenda of the Lamb must fight the fight for religious liberty for all as the First Amendment right is foundational to our society and so human flourishing in freedom. That's what we're called to do. The Lamb's agenda calls us to submit to the government out of reverence for God, but we also need to be willing to speak up when there are clear violations of biblical values. I would say, honestly, the Lamb's agenda leads us to reject such things as socialism or communism. 
those ideas that threaten our personal freedoms, our, our freedom to speak biblical truth to our culture and to our leaders. We're called to follow Christ. We pursue his agenda. We gather around his table. We live out his mission in the public square. But our policies and our choices need to be informed by the book that he left us, the scriptures. It can't be the other way around. And this is of paramount importance as this election for our next president and government draws near. An election that could have generational consequences for our nation as well as for us individuals and our families. There's no perfect candidate. We can't look at one human being to save us from ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. Rather, we need to take a prayerful look at the issues and then a thoughtful look at the policies that are being brought forth and simply ask the question, which one is more aligned with the Lamb's agenda? We have to pray and think biblically as we exercise our right and responsibility to vote in our local, state, and national elections. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your comforting fact that you do have a purpose and a plan, Lord. That you raise up kings, you bring them down. And Lord, I just pray that we would be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us as far as the stewardship of our vote. I pray that it would be a vote that honors your kingdom and not any one candidate. Father, more than that, I pray for individuals who may be listening or watching or even here this morning who have yet to yield their heart, their life to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, it's, it's so important that we bring to bear what your word says about ourselves as individuals, that we're sinners without hope, caught in the mire and muck of sin, and only the power of Christ can free us, can forgive us, can set us on a new path. Lord, if there's any here this morning who've yet to put their faith, their trust in you, I pray that even now that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to believe in your way. Help me to follow you with my life. Help me to turn from my sin and turn to the Savior. And as believers, I pray that we would be bold in our living for Christ, that we wouldn't be silenced, that we wouldn't be just put off and put aside, but, Father, we would uh, willingly live for you in our churches, in our homes, in our families, and even in and through our government. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.